Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Shmooz, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Sam Sakharov. Sam is Lerman Neubauer, Associate Curator at the Jewish Museum in New York. He received his PhD from Yale University in 2019, where he was a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Doctoral Fellow. During 2014 to 2015, he held an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Museum Research Consortium Fellowship at the Museum of Modern Art. His work has been supported by numerous agencies, including the National Endowment for the Humanities. Sam is the co-curator of Afterlives, Recovering the Lost Stories of Looted Art, currently on view at the Jewish Museum in New York. Welcome, Sam. Hey, good to be with you. Great to have you here, um, uh, all the way on the other side of the country, I believe. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you from Los Angeles. So, Sam, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about Afterlives, how the exhibit came about. And I think the title suggests much of what this is about, but I'm eager to ask you how you took it all on. Yeah, of course. So um, planning for the exhibition started when um, Darcy Alexander, chief curator at the Jewish Museum, and I both joined the museum at around the same time. We both um, came to the Jewish Museum about three and a half years ago, and we were both interested in one chapter in, in particular in the museum's history, which hadn't really been shared with our visitors, and that is a chapter um, in the museum's history right after the war, when the museum actually served as a depot for a very important organization known as Jewish Cultural Reconstruction. That organization, which maybe we can talk about a little bit more as we go, was responsible for storing and redistributing what was called airless or orphan Judaica. And the Jewish Museum was a depot for the JCR. So we were really compelled by that that part of of the Jewish Museum's history. And that really became the genesis for this uh, broader exhibition, Afterlives, which really considers the process, not only of looting, but also of recovery or restitution. So you write that Afterlives focuses on the seizure and movement of artworks as they traveled through distribution centers, sites of recovery and networks of collectors before, during, and after World War II. Can you provide sort of one or two examples maybe of a backstory for some of the work? Yeah, of course. So um, as I mentioned, the Jewish Museum itself was one of those uh, spaces, Um, but other spaces that we consider and devote galleries to are um, the Jus de Palm in Paris, which was one of the largest uh, storage centers um, for Nazi looted art in France, and the Munich Central Collecting Point, which was one of the largest um, collecting points uh, administered by the Allies uh, after the war. In the Jus de Pomme section of the show, we um, feature a number of works, including three paintings, uh, incredible work by Cezanne, uh, a beautiful piece by Picasso, both of which were looted from a man named Alphonse Kahn, and then a small painting by the post-Cubist artist Federer Lowenstein. All three of those works um, actually hung together in a specific gallery at the Jus de Pomme known as the Room of the Martyrs. Um, that gallery was dedicated to so-called degenerate art. So we, re, uh, we reunite those three works in, in, um, in our gallery at, at the Jewish Museum for the first time since they hung together in 1942. Um, and another uh, pair of paintings that we show in that same gallery are two incredible pieces by Henri Matisse, 
they are in some ways uh, favorites of, of many of our visitors. And both of those works, one was titled Girl in Yellow and Blue with Guitar, the other is titled Daisies, were stolen from a man named Paul Rosenberg. And Rosenberg has a really incredible story. He ran one of the most important galleries in Paris dedicated to modern art. He represented not only Matisse himself, but also Picasso, Leger, and Braque. And the two paintings that we feature in our exhibition were stolen from a home that Paul Rosenberg kept in Bordeaux uh, while he was preparing to flee to New York. Those two paintings were stolen from that home. And then they start this incredible uh, journey together, sort of as traveling partners. They travel first to the German embassy in Paris, which the Nazis had converted into a storage depot, then to the Louvre, which had also been converted by the Nazis into a depot, and then finally to the Jus de Pomme, which I mentioned a moment ago. And at that point, they're both considered for trade, and one actually ends up in the collection of Ermin Göring and travels to his estate in southwest Germany. So in many cases in the exhibition, you're seeing works that are reunited at the Jewish Museum that have hung together before in one of these other spaces, a Nazi storage depot, a hidden bunker, or indeed an allied collecting point. Which makes me beg the question, um, one, has much of this work been exhibited publicly since it's been recovered? Um, and also what I'm so curious as there's so much more of this surfacing now. There have been documentaries, there have been numerous articles um, about specific works um, and how how they're being recovered and um, brought back to their rightful owners, et cetera. How, how is it working with other curators too? Did that come become into play or other, you know, countries, et cetera? It's a long, long meandering question. No, but, a, but an important one. Um, yeah, so, so all of the works that are in the exhibition um, have been restituted to their rightful owners. So um, they're all sort of um, examples of just restitution. Um, we wouldn't show a work that, uh, that, was, um, that had not been restituted. But two works in, in particular are um, sort of uh, have a special place um, for us. And they are um, a painting by the German expressionist painter Max Pechstein a work called um, Four Nudes in a Landscape from 1912. Um, and the second work is, is that painting that I mentioned by the artist Feder Lowenstein. And the reason that I say that they're both particularly sort of special and it's an honor to show them is that um, the loan of those works were, uh, in both cases were the result of uh, a really great relationship that we established with the French cultural ministry. Um, the Max Pechstein painting, as some of your listeners may know, um, was restituted to the heirs of um, a man named Ugo Zimon, from whom it was taken um, in 1940. Uh, and um, the French cultural ministry and the French government in general were really proactive in ensuring that that work was restituted to the heirs of, of Ugo Zimon. And we worked uh, also with the heirs to, um, to allow for the work to travel to New York. So it's sort of a, a best practice. Um, sort of it models a kind of behavior that we'd like to see uh, more of. And the, the Lowenstein work is actually um, in the process now of being restituted to Lowenstein's own heirs. So in this case, the heirs of the artist himself. Um, and again, that loan was the result of uh, really courageous and um, principled work on the part of the French cultural ministry um, who uh, really wanted it to be shown again as a sort of example of, um, yeah, best practices uh, for um, institutions um, uh, dealing with the, the restitution of, of objects that are currently in their possession. 
know, it's, it's interesting, and I'll relate this personally, um, having studied art history and all the rest of it, you know, some people ask me about a work of art or something that they don't understand. And I always think that you can respond to a work emotionally and you can respond to a work intellectually. And I'd be curious, these are stories that have also um, beyond the responding to the actual work itself have resonance in terms of the emotional impact, the historical. And and how did you consider that in, again, curating and putting this together? Yeah, great question. And it's actually something that has been unfolding as we, uh, not only as we developed and then installed the show, but really in the weeks and months after the show has opened, um, the works of art and the way that we sort of treat them um, really do become sort of conduits for an emotional connection with the men and women to whom they belonged. Um, you know, of course, art is able to resonate in a way that um, a document or a photograph, um, something more, uh, a more conventional historical document maybe can't. And um, in the exhibition, we've really been struck by how visitors um, have sort of uh, been able to connect, as you say, not only intellectually, uh, but also emotionally with some of the stories of the men and women to whom the, the works belonged. When you're standing in front of a work that you know has um, was not only sort of loved and cherished by an individual, but then was taken from that person and then uh, sort of trafficked in the way that many of the works in the show were, you do start to think about the different eyes that have sort of come to rest on that object and the different contexts in which that object uh, was um, was seen. And it does, uh, it can really be quite stirring as you're sort of implying. Um, all of those moments of history seem to sort of rush in as you're standing there in the gallery on uh, the Upper East Side. The other thing that struck me about this, well, there are two things, but let me go to the first one, which is the inclusion of Judaica alongside paintings and drawings. And I was curious to hear your thoughts on how you think one informs the other. Yeah, well, the Judaica that you're referring to is um, is uh, very, very specific. I mean, the objects that we show are all from the museum's collection and they all are um, objects that we received, um, again, via that organization, Jewish Cultural Reconstruction um, or, or JCR as it's known. Um, the JCR was established uh, and sort of formally recognized in 1947 by the American government, as well as other nations, as having a legal right to um, take possession of heirless or orphaned Jewish cultural property. The fear was that if an organization like the JCR wasn't established, those objects would be returned to their nations of origin because the individuals or communities to whom they had belonged had been destroyed. And it was felt that it was uh, inappropriate for that material to be returned to those countries because many of them had been complicit in the Holocaust. So the JCR is, is formally established in 47, although it um, originates um, during the war. And uh, the Jewish Museum is uh, one of their most important depots. Um, in 1949, we receive about 83 crates containing over 3,000 pieces of Judaica. And we facilitated the redistribution of those objects to communities around the world. The feeling was that by re-entering the current of Jewish life, those objects would actually sort of um, uh, allow for Jewish cultural uh, Jewish culture as such to not only survive but flourish. We did accession um, a little over two hundred objects, and it's from that group that we drew the selection that's um, in the exhibition. And 
in that sense, you know, the, the, the Judaica really has a similar story as the, as the objects. Um, they were looted from uh, communities and individuals. And um, like many of the paintings, which have stamps or inventory numbers on their, on their versos, many of the, the, um, uh, the ritual objects that we show have marks that sort of attest to this tumultuous history. In the case of the ceremonial objects, there are these aluminum plates, these aluminum discs that are inscribed with a Star of David and the letters JCR, a record again of these um, of this this harrowing moment in their in their history. So we see the Judaica as really being an extension of, rather than a departure from, um, the story that we also tell with with the art. Which then leads me into the second question related to this. You have, if I may, boldly, bravely. Um, it's just, I find it really interesting that you also commissioned four pieces from contemporary artists. And what was your thinking behind that? Yeah, so we felt that it was very important to um, to engage contemporary artists in reflecting on the, the themes of the exhibition for a number of reasons. Um, on the one hand, we have done more traditional shows about looted art. Um, including shows that have focused on individual families and collectors. So we felt that we had um, we had executed really well on that um, on that style of presenting this material. We also are aware that the way that this um, history uh, has to be presented um, may need to change as we become sort of more distant from the events of the Holocaust itself. Um, we're really aware of the um, of the need to um, recognize that the, the history that we tell um, affects different generations differently. And we want to be open to that change. Um, many of the, uh, the artists that we commissioned have personal relationships to this history. Their families were um, disrupted. And in some cases, um, uh, uh, family members did, did in fact perish during the Holocaust. Um, and in other cases, uh, some of the artists that we commissioned um, have a sort of longstanding commitment to themes of um, looted property and indeed uh, Nazi looted property. So we wanted to be um, a forum and a platform to to continue that conversation and really sort of um, uh, ensure that that the the treatment of this history remains sort of present tense. Um, yeah. And. I know this is a question that's probably impossible to answer, but do you have any sense of how much more artwork is out there? And also, um, it's it must be quite a lot of work to sort of establish the provenance for a lot of this, and and also to tell the story of the collectors, which I think is also an interesting chapter. Certainly. So it's very difficult to say um, how much work remains um, out there uh, awaiting restitution. Um, conservative estimates uh, sort of peg the number um, of looted works of fine art at around 600,000. Um, uh, that, that was about 20% of the fine art in Europe. When you add to that um, things like um, furniture, jewelry, books, and works that are sort of uh, 
that at the time would have been considered a, a sort of middling quality, the number quickly swells to the many millions of objects and indeed sort of is beyond reckoning. So it's very difficult to say. Another, uh, another thing that makes it hard to sort of estimate how much remains um, awaiting um, restitution is that in many cases, um, the circumstances of, of the theft were complicated and matters of degree. So in addition to works that were really outright stolen involving, you know, a, a, a Nazi officer kicking down a door and taking a, a painting. There are also many works that were sold under duress, um, that were uh, sold in some cases by their rightful owners in order to pay for flight taxes and that kind of thing. So even the category of stolen objects um, itself is rather rather more porous and blurrier than one, than one might think. Um, and that means that objects will move from sort of category of you know, rightfully purchased to um, wrongfully purchased as details of those, those um, specific cases um, come to light. So it's hard to say how much remains, remains out there. And in terms of you know, establishing the provenance, it is, it is very difficult. And one of the things that, um, that Darcy and I became aware of uh, as we were working on this is really one of the most important things that um, nation states and other bodies can do if they want to facilitate um, uh, fair and just restitution is to fund provenance research. Um, it's a very costly task. Um, and, um, and that really should be, I think, a, 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 um, a, a site of, of financial and other investment um, just to, to ensure that, that um, institutions are really able to access archives to contact families, to travel if need be, and really fill in some of the gaps of, of these many, many objects that were um, moved during this period in history. And what do you hope the viewers will take away from it? In some ways, this goes back to an earlier question that you, that you posed. Um, I think that one of the most heartening um, responses that we've encountered in the galleries is that emotional response. Um, visitors who, again, may otherwise have seemed, um, have thought of themselves as being rather distant or removed from this moment in history, which is you know, now more than seven decades um, past, really feeling that, um, really feeling the sort of experience of, of loss, the experience of um, pathos um, that the gallery sort of, uh, that the works in the gallery um, uh, present. I think that's been um, the most uh, moving and affecting part of, uh, of putting the show together is allowing people to connect with these particular stories to make the, the histories of the men and women um, that we, uh, whose stories we tell, make those present tense and, and resonate um, today. That's been the, the hope. And I think we've achieved that in many cases. Yeah, it's a funny thing. So as somebody who grew up with a collector father, uh, uh, artwork is so much a part of, you know, they're like family members. And for people who didn't even know that their family had this artwork as part of their life, as part of their everyday, um, I imagine it must be 
yeah, there, there are many layers to um, unraveling all of those emotions and connections. Um, and it's also great to be able to see some of this art that <laughs> we know from a lot of these artists who are familiar names, but you've not seen this body of work of theirs, um, which is great. So um, before I let you go, quick question, was there um, one piece uh, that particularly resonates with you or that was pivotal in working you know, with Darcy on the curation? I would say that um, the I would say that the most stirring work in the show, in some ways, is the Judaica from the Jewish Museum's collection. Um, we're very proud of the role that the Jewish Museum played um, uh, as a as an associate of Jewish culture reconstruction. That organization was administered by Hannah Arendt, the famous uh, philosopher. Um, and so knowing that we have this uh, connection, uh, not only to her, but to this uh, moment of really um, principled activism by a lot of uh, Jewish scholars who then became sort of, um, as I said, sort of uh, protagonists in this moment of history very directly. Um, that was uh, one of the most stirring things. But I also will just say that those two paintings by Matisse are pretty excellent. And uh, it's really, uh, every time I see them together on the wall, knowing what they've been through, um, I do get a, a chill. Um, I, would, I would say that's so true. And for all of our listeners, you know, it's worth a journey from Massachusetts. So wherever you are, <laughs> um, the exhibition is on view at the Jewish Museum in New York City through January 9, 2022. Uh, learn more and plan your visit. It's very easy to do tickets uh, on a timed entry and all the rest of it. You'll find all the information at thejewishmuseum.org. Um, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time and, and for putting together a show that has so many levels um, uh, and is just, yeah, it's very illuminating. And again, a story is well told. So thank you and look forward to what your next uh, exhibit is. Any hints? Uh, we're actually planning a show that deals with another chapter in the Jewish Museum's history uh, from the early 60s in New York. So that's something to look forward to next summer. All right. Well, I will plan my next visit. <laughs> thank you again, Sam, and stay well. Thanks so much. You too. You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.